0: Ah! Dawn is just breaking as I steer my buggy towards Hendrickson Hall. The morning chill is biting, but it's a part of the job I've come to enjoy. The hall, with its towering spires and ivy-clad walls, always feels like a step back in time. As I pull up, I take in the quiet grandeur of the place, the way it sits, imposing and serene amidst the sprawling estate. As I check my horse and step out of the buggy, the mist gently lifts from the surrounding grounds. Revealing the well-tended gardens and the distant outline of the forest The estate, situated on land steeped in history and whispers of old Reminds me of the different lives and stories that have passed through its gates As I wait at the front door I can't help but reflect on the countless times I've made this journey Each visit adding to the tapestry of stories and experiences that connect me to this place The hall isn't just a structure, it's a living part of the community Its presence felt far beyond the wrought-iron gates that guard its entrance. I'm greeted at the door by Mrs. Thornway. Her presence always brings a sense of order and calm. Handing over the stack of letters and parcels, I exchange a few words about the weather and the latest news from town. I can see the household slowly stirring to life behind her. The Hendricksons have a way of making even the simplest of mornings seem elegant. As I'm about to turn back to my buggy, a thought crosses my mind. Mrs. Thornway, I say, I'm heading into Shadowbroke Camp shortly. Do you need anything from there? It's a small gesture, but I've always felt a connection to the folks at Hendrickson Hall. A part of their world yet apart from it. She seems to consider it for a moment, and I can tell she's weighing the offer. I wait, patient, knowing that a trip to town is not a decision made lightly in a household like this.
1: The morning at Hendrickson Hall begins with the familiar sound of Johnny Bailey's buggy on the gravel drive. His arrival with the post is a daily routine, yet it brings a small slice of the outside world into our stately, somewhat isolated life. Today, as I open the door to greet him, the chill from outside briefly sweeps into the warm hall, a reminder of the world beyond these walls. Johnny is a fixture in our lives, his presence as steady as the ancient oaks that line the estate. As he hands over the letters, his offer to take us into town catches me by surprise. It's an opportunity for Zarya to see more of the world, something I know she cherishes. I quickly weigh the decision, mindful of my responsibilities. Inviting Johnny in for a brief respite from the cold, I serve him coffee in the kitchen. The rich aroma fills the space, a stark contrast to the crisp winter air outside. These moments of warmth and casual conversation are rare and refreshing. Deciding to accept his offer, I prepare zari ya for the journey, ensuring she's dressed warmly against the winter's bite. The departure is swift, the buggy waits, the horse's breath visible in the cold air. As we set off, I feel a mixture of anticipation and responsibility. It's a simple journey to town. But for Zaria, each trip is a chance to learn and experience something new, a brief escape from the strictures of her life at the hall.
2: Adeline, do you think we'll find the perfect ribbon for Beethoven today?
1: I believe so, dear. The shops in town should have just what we need, and perhaps a treat for ourselves as well.
3: The horse-drawn buggy, freshly adorned with a layer of snow, stood ready, its wooden wheels creaking as it idled. Johnny Bailey, the reliable postman, held the reins and wore a warm smile as he helped Zaria and Adeline into the carriage.
1: With a gentle nudge and a click of his tongue, Mr. Bailey urged the horses forward. The carriage rolled smoothly along the snow-covered path, the wheels crunching softly beneath it. Zaria and I peered around the picturesque landscape.
2: The arrival of Johnny's buggy fills me with anticipation. The ride to Shadowbrook Camp is an adventure I always look forward to. As we leave the estate, I watch the familiar scenery of my home fade into the background, its stately charm giving way to the open skies and wide expanses of the countryside. The journey is a delightful blend of sights and sounds, The forest with its whispering pines and snow-covered paths is a world of wonder, so different from the manicured grounds of the estate. It's like a winter wonderland.
0: It truly is, Miss Zaria. Witchcrest Peak wears her winter cloak with such elegance.
3: The town of Shadowbrook Camp gradually came into view, nestled at the base of the towering Old Witch. The streets were bustling with townsfolk going about their daily routines, their breath forming clouds in the cold air.
2: There's the market. Beethoven's ribbons must be there.
1: Patience, my dear, we'll find the perfect one after we visit Aunt Tilly's place for stew and some warm bread.
0: Mrs. Thornway, with a gentle hand on Zaria's shoulder, led her through the throngs of people.
1: Their quest for the ribbon was soon successful, and Zaria clutched her prize, a beautifully crafted ribbon that she knew Beethoven would adore.
3: Next on their agenda was a visit to Aunt Tilly's restaurant. The establishment, known throughout the camp for its hearty fare and welcoming atmosphere, was a stark contrast to the formal dining of Hendrickson Hall. As they entered, the warm aroma of stew and freshly baked bread enveloped them. Aunt Tilly, with her ever-present apron and warm smile, greeted them like family
4: we have here. Come on in from the cold.
3: The restaurant was a hub of activity, with miners and townsfolk enjoying their meals amidst lively conversations. Sitting at a cozy table, Zari Ya and Mrs. Thornway enjoyed the delicious stew and bread, savoring each bite. Aunt Tilly joined them, sharing news and gossip of the town, her stories painting a vivid picture of life in Shadowbrook camp.
2: Aunt Tilly, may I ask a favor? Yes, little one, what is it? We need to send Papa lunch at the mine. He forgets to eat when he's working.
1: Zaria, darling, your father might be busy. We shouldn't disturb him.
2: Let the child
4: be Adeline. She knows her father. Garcon, pack up the stew and cornbread. Add some lemonade too.
3: The runner hastens to assemble the meal while Adeline watches, a mixture of concern and admiration in her eyes. The runner scurries to prepare the order as Aunt Tilly dictated the items. A steaming bowl of her famous witchcrest stew, hearty and filling, perfect for a hard-working man. A golden slice of cornbread, butter melting into its warm crevices, and a refreshing jar of homemade lemonade. All set, ma'am.
2: Tell him, Miss Zaria insists... And make sure he eats it all.
3: Aunt Tilly excuses herself after the garcon is sent off, and she returns to the kitchen briefly to talk to her sous chef, Samuel.
4: You see that little one? She's got more heart than most folks twice her size. Reminds me of this town when it was just starting, full of hope and stubbornness.
5: She's special, Aunt Tilly.
4: She is. Keeps her father on his toes, keeps all of us on our toes. She's the kind of spark Shadowbrook camp needs. Makes me think we're doing something right around here.
6: Ain't that the truth, boss?
5: Her kindness spreads like wildfire.
4: Well, we've got a busy day ahead of us. Those miners are always hungry for something hearty.
5: That's for sure, boss. The stew and pies are the crowd favorites, especially in this weather.
4: You got that right. Let's make sure that stew simmers to perfection and them pies come out of the oven piping hot. Wouldn't want to disappoint our regulars.
5: Don't you worry, Tilly. I've got the recipes down to a science. They'll be singing our praises down at the mines.
4: That's what I like to hear. And while you're at it, let's stock up on those biscuits. The miners love dunking them in their coffee.
5: Biscuits it is. I'll make a fresh batch just before the lunch rush.
3: After their warm and delightful visit at Aunt Tilly's restaurant, Zaria and Mrs. Thornway made their way to a dressmaker's shop.
2: It was on a frost-kissed morning, when the sky was as clear as the crystal waters of Cobalt, Cavern Lake, that an exciting stir fluttered through our town. A messenger, looking like a brave knight from the stories, rode in on a horse that puffed clouds of steam. Clutched in his gloved hand was a letter, sealed with a grand wax stamp, showing a mighty lion and a clever raven the symbols of my daddy, Mr. Reinhardt Hendrickson. I peered out from the shop window my eyes, wide with curiosity, as the sheriff standing tall and dignified, received the missive in the town square. The town's folk, their faces lit with anticipation, gathered around, eager to hear the news. With a voice steady and clear, the sheriff broke the seal revealing the proud lion and the cunning raven.
6: Good people of Shadowbrook Camp, I have a message for the entire town. Let it be known that Mr. Reinhardt Hendrickson, our esteemed benefactor and the owner of the Hendrickson Mining Corporation, invites one and all to partake in a yuletide gala of unparalleled (laughs) delight. This grand Christmas soiree shall be held at the illustrious Hendrickson Hall on the eve of December 12th. Prepare yourselves for an evening of sumptuous feasts where our beloved Aunt Tilly's renowned culinary skills will tantalize your taste buds. And the local butcher, Mr. Thomas, promises a spread of succulent meats to warm your bellies in this cold winter. Behold the spectacle of a lifetime with props and furniture crafted by none other than our skilled carpenter, Mr. Jonathan McKenzie, and draperies of the finest fabric imported from distant Europe, brought forth by the diligent hands of our local seamstress, Mrs. Abigail Fletcher. And lo, a performance to capture your hearts, Mr. Hendrickson himself shall grace the stage, presenting a one-man rendition of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, rumors whisper of stage illusions crafted by the clever hands of our apothecary Mr. Jacob Wells that promised to leave you in awe. As we come together let us share in the joy and camaraderie that defines the spirit of our community. This is not merely a party, it is a testament to the resilience and warmth of our town, a beacon of light in the shadow of Witchcrest Peak. So mark your calendars, don your finest attire, and let us join together in merriment and celebration. This yuletide, the heart of Witchcrest Peak, will beat in unison within the walls of our little Zarya's home in the hollow. Come one, come all, and let us make this a night to remember. <laughs>
2: in every heart. Whispers of a night filled with feasting, laughter, and music danced through the crowd. I clapped my hands in delight, imagining our grand hall adorned with festive decorations, the air filled with the melody of Christmas songs, and tables laden with treats. The messenger then departed, leaving a trail of happy murmurs behind, I turned away from the window, my heart brimming with joy, dreaming of the magical night that awaited us all, a night where the heart of our quaint town would come together in celebration under the roof of our beloved Hendrickson Hall. Welcome to Zaria Hall, where the mountain stands sentinel in the moonlight, and whispers of the past reverberate through the chilling winter air. I am Zaria Hendrickson, your guide to the uncharted realms of this winter solstice, where the secrets of Hendrickson Hall are unveiled beneath the shroud of night. The flickering candle frost-covered windows and the echoes of laughter from the past paint a portrait of a yuletide gathering like no other. Join me on this dark winter journey as we unlock the stories that haunt this night in the house where the boundaries between the living and the departed blur and the echoes of history resonate through the frosty stillness.
0: Before the yuletide celebrations, Witchcrest Peak, cloaked in its wintry mantle, watched over the town as its residents bustled with festive preparations. Each character in this quaint northern Californian town contributed a unique touch to the holiday spirit.
3: Madame Ruth, her mystic shop now a beacon of festive spirit, hosted small gatherings where she read tarot cards and shared stories of Yule traditions, her voice weaving a tapestry of ancient lore and modern hopes. She and Esme Levine, the opera singer, collaborated on a special performance that blended music with mysticism, creating an enchanting event that promised to be one of the highlights of the holiday season.
4: Aunt Tilly, meanwhile, was in her element. Her eatery was more than just a place for food. It was a hub of community warmth. Her plans for the festive feast grew each day with neighbors volunteering to help. She envisioned a banquet that would not only fill stomachs, but also hearts, especially for those who faced the holiday season with less.
7: Widow Parker, with her knitted gifts, visited families around town, distributing warmth, both literal and figurative. Her acts of kindness were small ripples that created waves of goodwill throughout the community.
8: In the quiet corners of my apothecary shop, amidst the clinking of glass bottles and the rustling of dried herbs, I've been working on something rather unusual these past few weeks. Mr. Hendrickson, a man of peculiar tastes and grand ideas, approached me with a request most extraordinary. He sought chemicals and concoctions not for healing or soothing, but for the art of illusion, for creating fog that creeps and fire that dazzles without harm. As I mix and measure, I can't help but wonder at the spectacle he plans to unveil at the Christmas celebration. My shop, usually a place of remedies and cures, has become a workshop of theatrical magic. The thought of my creations becoming part of a grand performance at little Miss Zaria's home in the hollow excites me. It's not often that an apothecary gets to dabble in the world of theater and spectacle. And though I usually find comfort in the predictable reactions of my compounds there's a thrill in knowing they'll contribute to something that'll ignite wonder and
5: awe in the hearts of the townsfolk doctor and mrs peabody's toy drive was a resounding success the couple worked tirelessly
9: their home became a sort of beacon to the season's spirit of giving Children peeked in with wide-eyed wonder, knowing that Christmas morning would bring joy and surprises.
10: Samuel, the saloon owner, turned his establishment into a storytelling haven. Every evening, as the fire crackled and drinks flowed, he shared tales that ranged from heartwarming to hair-raising, often ending with a moral that resonated with the yuletide spirit.
6: Professor Wainwright and Dakota Moon began their series of lecture talks. Drawing in crowds eager to learn about the rich tapestry of traditions and folklore that surrounded Christmas. Their sessions became a place for learning, reflection and connection, bridging the past with the present.
1: At Zaria's Hollow, the transformation was remarkable. The estate, usually shrouded in an air of mystery, was now ablaze with lights and decorations. Reinhardt Hendrickson seemed to take a personal interest in the preparations. Whispers among the townsfolk spoke of a grand party that would be unlike any other, a celebration that would bring together the entire community in a spectacle of festivity and joy.
11: Every chip of wood, every stroke of the saw, it's all got to be perfect. Mr. Hendrickson, he's got this grand vision for a Christmas carol and he's trusting me to bring it to life. It's not just about building a set, it's about crafting a world. The chair for Scrooge, now that's a challenge, has to look stern and unwelcoming, just like Scrooge himself. But I'm not just a carpenter, am I? I'm a creator of worlds. And this Christmas, I'm going to give them something that will make their eyes wide with wonder. The sound of my hammer, the scent of fresh wood. It's like a symphony, a prelude to the magic we're about to unveil.
12: The fabric from Europe, it's like nothing I've ever worked with before. It's not just cloth. It's a piece of history, a fragment of a world far away. As I stitch and sew, I imagine the Grand Hall transforming, the draperies cascading down like waterfalls of silk and velvet. Each thread I weave is a part of the story, a backdrop to Mr. Hendrickson's performance. This isn't just a job, it's an art. When they all gather for the Christmas party, These draperies will be more than decorations. They'll be a testament to the elegance and grace of the season. My fingers may ache, and my eyes may tire, but when I see it all come together, it'll be worth every stitch.
1: From the window of the study, I, Adeline Thornway, stood watching a scene that filled my heart with a mix of curiosity and warmth. There, in the distance, young Zarya, the light of this grand estate, was perched atop the shoulders of Takoda Moon, a figure as enigmatic as the forest that surrounds our home. Takoda, a man of the land whose presence is as steady as the ancient pines, moved with a purpose through the snow-blanketed woods. Zarya, wrapped in her thick cloak, seemed to be the embodiment of youthful exuberance and excitement. Her laughter, even from this distance, was a melody that broke the stillness of the winter air. As I watched, a smile found its way to my face. It was rare to witness such a bond, the wise, quiet Takoda and our vibrant Zarya. The sight was a stark contrast to the usual solitude of his nature. Zarya leaned in, speaking earnestly to Takoda, Her hand gestures animated, painting pictures in the air. Takoda, a silent sentinel, listened intently, nodding in agreement to the words I could not hear. This unusual alliance between the young and the old, the imaginative and the wise, sparked a sense of intrigue. What could they be planning? Zarya's eyes sparkled with a secret, and Takoda, a willing accomplice in her mysterious plan, added to the intrigue that was building around the Hendrickson household as the Yuletide celebration drew near. From my vantage point, I could only speculate about their whispers and nods. It was clear that Zarya, with her boundless creativity, had drawn Takoda into a scheme that was sure to add an element of wonder to our upcoming festivities. I turned from the window, my heart lighter, Imagining the possibilities that these two could conjure for the eagerly awaited celebration.
0: As the day of the Yuletide celebration approached, a sense of unity enveloped Witchcrest Peak. Neighbors helped each other with decorations, shared recipes, and exchanged small gifts. It was a time when the cold, snowy backdrop was warmed by the glow of community and the anticipation of shared joy.
7: The chill of the winter night hung
3: in the air as guests gathered outside the grand entrance of Hendrickson Hall, their breaths visible in the soft moonlight. The atmosphere was filled with anticipation, a shared sense of excitement, and perhaps a touch of nervousness. These were no ordinary visitors but the townsfolk of Shadowbrook Camp, each dressed in their finest attire, eager to partake in the enchanting Eulatide gala within. As they huddled near the grand double doors, adorned with festive wreaths and ribbons, their murmurs of conversation filled the night eyes sparkled with curiosity, and laughter wafted on the crisp breeze, momentarily drowning out the sounds of the surrounding forest. And there, at the threshold, stood Adeline Thornway, the housekeeper of Hendrickson Hall, her presence as commanding as it was enigmatic. The guests exchanged hushed whispers and curious glances. For some, it was a curiosity, For others, it was an opportunity for gossip. But in their gazes, there was an unspoken recognition of her significance in this moment. She awaited the signal, a bell's chime that would mark the commencement of the grand yuletide celebration. Adeline's poised and dignified bearing, despite her perceived otherness, added an air of mystique to the proceedings. She was the guardian of the threshold, the one entrusted with opening the doors to this magical world within.
1: These doors, ornate and grand, stand as a symbol of my journey. The irony isn't lost on me, for I was once shunned, an outcast for something I couldn't control. This, this extra finger on my left hand set me apart. Yet, here I stand, as the head housekeeper of Hendrickson Hall, the most esteemed place in these parts. Who would have thought that the very hand that marked me as different would one day hold the power to open these doors? I've endured the whispers, the cruel glances, and the heartache of rejection. But I've risen above it all. I've proven that my worth isn't defined by appearances, but by the strength of my character and the warmth in my heart. And tonight, as I prepare to open these doors, It's a reminder that life can be filled with twists of fate and unexpected turns. I'll welcome guests into this house, my world of elegance and wonder, a world where I once believed I'd never belong. So as I grasp this handle, I do it not just as the housekeeper, but as one of them, one of the people of this town. Tonight, I'll share in the magic of this evening knowing that I've earned my place here. The bell's melodic chime from the clock tower reverberates through the wintry air and my heart quickens its pace. The familiar signal, those three firm knocks, is now my responsibility to deliver. With a deep breath, I pivot gracefully on my heel, my left hand's birth defect prominently on display. Approaching the grand double doors bedecked with festive wreaths and ribbons, I can't help but feel a peculiar kinship with them. It's as though these doors and I share a secret bond, a silent understanding. As I place my hand on the ornate handle, I draw strength from the elegant surroundings and the power they bestow upon me. With a determined flourish, I swing the doors wide open, revealing the enchanting winter wonderland beyond. The gaslight chandeliers above cast a warm, inviting glow, and garlands of evergreen and holly wind their way around banisters and balustrades, adding a touch of holiday magic. The pièce de résistance, a towering Christmas tree adorned with glistening baubles, tinsel and the soft flicker of candles, commands the center of attention. As the assembled guests surge forward, their voices rising in laughter and animated conversation, I step backward, never breaking my gaze from the breathtaking scene before me. In this moment, my extra finger is of little consequence. I am not an outsider. I am an integral part of this magical evening, a night where the boundaries of class and circumstance are blurred, and the spirit of celebration unites us all. In the glow of this enchanting yuletide soiree, I stand tall, knowing that the doors to Hendrickson Hall have been opened, not just to the guests, but to the promise of joy, unity, and endurance. Oh, bless
7: my soul. Would you look at this? It's like we've stepped into a tale spun by the finest storyteller. The carpenter's truly outdone himself.
9: I! must make notes, jot down every detail. The readers will want to know about this. It's as if the Grand Hall has become a canvas, painted with the spirit of the season. Ah, the
13: joy of Christmas, my dear friends. It warms my heart to see the community come together, like a tapestry woven with threads of love and goodwill.
12: Oh, Hiram, look! It's like a magical village under the tree. Can we have one at home next year?
6: Well, I'll be. It's a sight to behold, isn't it? If this ain't the most cheerful Christmas I've seen, then I don't know what is. They say the carpenter's hands can shape iron into anything, but this, he shaped our hearts into something beautiful tonight.
14: Life and death, joy and sorrow, all under one roof. In this moment, it feels as if even the departed souls are here, smiling upon us.
15: This beats any day down in the mines, I tell you. Raise your glasses, everyone, to Mr. Hendrickson and his grand Christmas creation.
12: Oh, my stars! Would you look at this? I dare say, it's like something out of a fairy tale. It's as if we've entered another world, one of pure enchantment. There's a gentle hum of merry voices and I see guests mingling in their finest attire. Some are sipping on glasses of mulled wine, their cheeks rosy from the warmth. And, oh, The children, they're giggling and running about, their eyes wide with wonder at the festive splendor. Let's make our way up the grand staircase, my good friend, for here there are more delights to behold. But before we ascend, take a moment to breathe in the scent of fresh pine and evergreen. It's like Christmas itself has come alive in this splendid mansion. Here we go, my dear friend. The second floor landing is adorned with more garlands and wreaths. And there, do you see it? A breathtaking tableau of a winter village. A miniature world beneath the towering Christmas tree. It's a replica of our town, Shadow Brook. Come. Look at this all the little houses, snow-covered lanes, and miniature villages in the midst of their holiday celebrations, and there he even built the mountain, the old witch, herself. It's a masterpiece. The carpenter must be a true artist. I could spend hours marveling at the intricate details, and I intend to do just that, a grand celebration indeed, and we're fortunate to be a part of it. Let's soak it all in, the joy. The magic and the beauty of this night.
16: Good evening, my dear friends and esteemed guests. Thank you for joining me at Hendrickson Hall on this most splendid of winter nights. Tonight we stand amidst the beauty that is Witchcrest Peak in winter. A season that, much like our town, is both fierce and magnificent. This evening is not just a celebration of the Yule Yuletide but a celebration of us, the people who call this remarkable place home. I look around and see faces familiar and new, each a vital thread in the tapestry of our community. This hall, often silent and solitary, tonight thrums with the life and energy you all bring. It's an honor to open its doors to such vibrant company. Ah. Let us make merry then, in the true spirit of the season, with good food, rouse in music, and stories shared by the fire. May tonight be a memory we carry with us through the seasons to come. So, without further ado, let the festivities commence.
3: As I mingled through the crowd, the energy of the hall was palpable. My gaze fell upon the faces illuminated by candlelight, each carrying their own secrets and stories. I couldn't resist sharing a few fortunes, the cards revealing glimpses of the future as the guests listened, their eyes wide with a blend of skepticism and fascination. The air was heavy with mystery, just the way I like it.
5: As the night progressed, I found myself in deep conversation with a few town elders, discussing everything from the common cold to the mysteries of the human mind. The warmth of the gathering, the sound of the pipe organ in the background, it all felt so invigorating. It's nights like these that remind me why I love this town.
4: Leaning against the wall, drinking hand, I watched the scenes unfold the laughter, the dances, the small shared moments. Every so often, someone would pull me into a tale or a joke. The ball was alive, a living storybook,
12: and I,
1: a character content to watch the plot twist and turn. From my secluded spot, I observed the gala with an artist's eye, the swirl of dresses, the play of light and shadow, the expressions of joy and surprise. It was all a beautiful moving painting and in the midst of it all young Zaria a bright spark her laughter ringing clear.
2: I darted through the crowd a sprite among the revelers. Every so often I'd catch Dakota's eye and we'd share a secret smile. Our surprise was still to come and the anticipation bubbled within me like a spring. Oh how they'll marvel I thought, my heart dancing
12: to
9: the rhythm of the night. From my vantage point near the grand fireplace, I observed the dance floor with an eagle eye. Ah, there's young Miss Clara, the flower girl being swept into a dance by Dr. Peabody's eldest son. Such a charming pair they make. And over there, Samuel, the saloon owner, sharing a dance with Widow Parker. Now, that's a surprising match, but they do seem to be enjoying themselves immensely. I adjusted my spectacles to better view the delightful scene. Our town's blacksmith appeared quite the gentleman, leading Abigail, our talented seamstress, through a graceful waltz. Their laughter was infectious. I couldn't help but smile, thinking of the gossip that would surely follow, and there, in a quieter corner, Professor Wainwright engaged in deep conversation with Madame Ruth. Now that's a pairing that piques one's curiosity.
3: Amidst the twirling and swirling of dancers, my attention was drawn to young Zaria, a vision of youth and excitement, chatting animatedly with Dakota Moon. Their bond was unmistakable, a blend of wisdom and whimsy. It made me think of the stories and lessons we could all learn from such an unlikely friendship.
7: As I sipped my punch, I noted Mr. Hendrickson himself, a gracious host, sharing a polite dance with Adeline Thornway. Their dance was the epitome of elegance and propriety. Around them, the room buzzed with energy, every dance, every shared glance, a story unfolding in this grand tapestry of our Yuletide Gala.
15: As the dinner hour arrives at the Yuletide Gala in Hendrickson Hall, the atmosphere shifts from lively mingling to a more structured yet equally festive setting.
8: Seated at a long table adorned with fine linen and sparkling silverware, I watched as the guests settled into their seats. The buzz of conversation filled the air, but my mind was partly on the impending midnight performance. I felt a twinge of nervous excitement, knowing the effects I had prepared were to play a central role. Around me the guests seemed oblivious To the secrets the night still held.
4: Peered out from the kitchen, my heart swelling with pride. The tables were laden with my dishes. Roasted meats, fragrant with herbs. Pies filled with winter fruits. Vegetables from Mr. Hendrickson's own garden. The sight of the townsfolk enjoying the feast. Their plates piled high was the greatest reward I could ask for laughter and compliments on the food reached my ear making all the hours of preparation worth
7: it. as we dined the glow of candles cast a warm inviting light over the hall the clink of cutlery and glasses provided a pleasant backdrop to our meal i noted mr hendrickson making his way around the room ensuring that every guest felt welcome his attention to detail was impeccable from the exquisite table settings to the perfect pairing of wines with each course.
12: During the meal I couldn't help but engage in a bit of people watching. The Peabody couple, always a picture of unity, shared quiet conversation. Young Samuel seemed to be telling a humorous tale to a group of elders judging by their bursts of laughter. And there The children, their faces alight with joy, were treated to their own festive table, complete with sweet treats and Yuletide delicacies.
1: Dinner at the Gala is not just a meal. It's an extension of the evening's celebration, a time for savoring Aunt Tilly's culinary masterpieces, for sharing stories and laughter, and for building anticipation for the mysterious performance planned for midnight. The guests, unaware of what's to come, enjoy the warmth and camaraderie that fills the Grand Hall.
11: The tables were cleared and the musicians began a lively tune. I found myself tapping my foot to the rhythm, watching as the first couples took to the dance floor. It's not every day you see such a spirited display in Witchcrest Peak. The laughter and energy in the room were infectious, and before I knew it, I was being pulled into a dance by Miss Clara. Her laughter was as bright as the
3: candlelight. After dinner, the younger ones gathered around me, their eyes wide with curiosity. Tell us a ghost story, Madame Ruth, they urged. So, by the light of the fireplace, I spun a tale of yuletide spirits and mysteries of the winter solstice. The children hung on every word, their imaginations alight with the magic of the season.
5: The post-dinner hours were filled with a delightful mix of entertainment. I watched as Professor Wainwright and Takoda Moon engaged a group in a lively discussion about Christmas folklore. Their tales were a fascinating blend of legend and history, captivating the guests with a sense of wonder about the traditions we hold dear.
1: I found myself in a corner of the room, observing the joyous scene. The children played games of charades and blind man's bluff, their laughter echoing through the hall. It was heartwarming to see the adults joining in, shedding their usual reserve for a night of simple, unadulterated joy.
16: Let us begin the tales. Who here has a thrilling story to tell?
10: Evening folks. I've got a tale for you, one that's as much a part of my saloon as the whiskey we serve. It's about how those old paintings came to adorn our walls. Some years back I took to collecting old-fashioned frames, always on the lookout for something unique to spruce up the saloon. I didn't care much for the paintings inside. As a hobbyist painter, I fancied replacing them with my own creations, something that matched their style and history. One winter, right before Christmas, I found a curious, dilapidated frame in a dustbin. The gilding was almost gone, and it was in a sorry state, but it had character. Inside was a badly painted portrait, something amateurish, but the frame, the frame was a beauty. I brought it back here to the saloon, planning to work on it over the holidays. On Christmas Eve, I finally got to it. I started cleaning it up, and it was quite the task, let me tell you. The frame cleaned up nice, but the painting, it was a ghastly thing. A crudely done portrait of a publican, you know, a pub owner like me. But this one, this one, folks, was all bloated and garish. But then something caught my eye beneath the layers of paint. There seemed to be another picture, something hidden. Curiosity got the better of me, and I started to remove the top layers. It was slow, delicate work, and by midnight, I had uncovered something astonishing. Underneath that vulgar portrait was another, a bust of a young woman painted so masterfully, it could have been done by Moroni himself. Her face and neck were pale, almost colorless, and her eyes, they were like dark caverns. The background was a deep, suggestive space. The dress, rich velvet. It was hauntingly beautiful, yet eerie. But that wasn't the end of it. The frame, upon closer inspection, had a design that seemed to tell a story of life and death. Snakes and bones woven into a macabre pattern. It sent a chill down my spine. I sat there staring at the painting, feeling a strange influence over me. It was as if the eyes of the woman were drawing me in, absorbing my very soul. I dreamt that night, a dream so vivid it felt real. The woman stepping out of the painting, approaching me with a ghostly presence. I woke with a start, the saloon's gaslight still burning bright. The picture had changed, the woman's cheeks flushed, her lips red as if alive. In a frenzy, I destroyed the painting, fed it to the stove, watching it burn with a mix of horror and relief. And the frame its still here in the saloon, but I've never had the courage to paint another picture for it. Well, Mr. Hendrickson, there was this peculiar
5: case, quite unlike any I've ever encountered. It began with a Mr. Tolson, who approached me with a most unusual request. He wanted to be fully anesthetized at a precise time, with no operation involved. His reasoning was eccentric. He was engaged in some esoteric research into the relation of space-time and the unconscious. He aimed to record his impressions before and after, being anesthetized to validate his scientific theories. At first, I was hesitant, considering the ethical implications and the potential risks. But Mr. Tolson was insistent, providing references and agreeing to a thorough medical examination. He had initially arranged for another anaesthetist, but due to unforeseen circumstances, he turned to me. The day came, and I administered the anaesthetic as agreed, with my niece, a trained nurse, by my side. The procedure seemed routine until Mr. Tolson regained consciousness. His reaction was unsettling. He spoke of bizarre otherworldly experiences, of traversing unknown realms that defied the very laws of nature. His descriptions were vivid, filled with cosmic landscapes and encounters with entities beyond our comprehension. It was as if he had glimpsed into realms beyond the veil of our reality. Following the incident, Mr. Tolson's behavior became increasingly erratic. He claimed that his experiment had unveiled truths too profound and terrifying for the human mind to grasp. His research, he insisted, had exposed him to cosmic horrors that haunted his every waking moment. The case of Mr. Tolson remains a mystery. Whether his experience was a product of the anesthetic, a psychological break, or something more, I cannot say but it was a stark reminder of the fine line between scientific pursuit and the
3: unknown realms that lie beyond our understanding. I have a tale to tell. Imagine, if you will, a wild Christmas night in 1843 in the snug parlor of Andy Sweeney's homestead where a gathering huddled close by the fire, grateful for the warmth and cheer amidst a raging storm outside. Mrs. Sweeney... Looking out into the blizzard, uttered a prayer for any poor souls caught in the tempest, drawing the curtains tight against the howling wind. The Sweeney household was renowned for its hospitality, and that night their oak table groaned under the weight of a bountiful feast. Mountains of roast beef, hills of potatoes, and an entire family of pies dressed in their crusty suits adorned the table, bringing joy and light to that frozen night. But outside, the storm raged on, transforming the moorland into a wintry abyss where the signpost at the four crossroads, a mundane thing in normal weather, now loomed like a monstrous spectre with hideous, reaching arms. In the midst of their merriment, their sanctuary of warmth and laughter, a cry pierced the night, a cry of anguish that stilled every heart in the room. It was a human voice, desperate and fearful, seeking shelter from the storm. Andy Sweeney flung the door open, and a beam of light cut through the tempest revealing a young man, a stranger, fleeing towards the house. He collapsed upon the threshold, seeking refuge in the Sweeney's welcoming home. This young man, an English gentleman by his attire, recounted his harrowing experience. Lost in the storm, he wandered off the road, his strength waning, his mind teetering on the brink of despair. In his darkest moment, he encountered a figure clad in black, a mysterious stranger who offered him a devilish game of cards at the crossroads with stakes far beyond mere gold. The tale grew more macabre as the stranger described his ordeal, playing cards with this sinister figure under the ghostly light of a lantern on a milestone that seemed more like a gravestone. The game, he claimed, was not just for money, but for his very soul. As the stranger played for his life, he glimpsed something terrifying, a cloven hoof beneath the hem of the man in black's cloak, revealing the true nature of his opponent. In a moment of terror and clarity, he fled, escaping the clutches of what he believed to be the devil himself. The tale ended with the stranger safe within the Sweeney's home. But the mystery of that night at the crossroads lingered, leaving the listeners to wonder whether it was a brush with the supernatural or a trick of the mind brought on by the storm.
5: Ah, what a sight this Yule celebration is. The Grand Hall of the Hendrickson House, transformed into a festive
16: wonderland, teeming with the joyous faces of Shadowbrook Camp's townsfolk. Ladies and gentlemen, as we journey through this season of giving, we must remember the fine line between desire and despair. Tonight, let us delve into a tale where the pursuit of the perfect gift leads to the darkest of paths to murder. Join us as we reenact the chilling story of Markheim. Tonight, on this cold evening, we step into a tale of moral quandary where the pursuit of the perfect gift crosses into the realm of the unspeakable. We see Mr. Markheim, portrayed by our own John Sadler, return to a familiar antique shop, a setting no different from tonight. His visit tonight is fraught with darker intentions, a stark contrast to the festive spirits around us.
7: John Sadler steps forward, embodying the conflicted character of Markheim. Beside him, Clarence Mims, known to many as the insightful bookseller assumes another pivotal role their presence brings the story to life stirring a sense of eerie realism in the hall
16: markheim's heart is a battleground of desire and despair his actions tonight set to change the course of his life forever let us watch as he navigates through his own shadowed psyche on a quest that takes him far beyond the... <coughs> <coughs> My choices,
7: the depths to which I've sunk, all for the sake of a gift, a token of love now tainted
15: with blood.
14: You stand at a crossroads, Markheim. One path leads to redemption, the other to eternal damnation.
5: Reinhardt weaves this tale of moral quandary It's as if he's holding up a mirror To our own souls Showing us the darkness that can lurk within Indeed, Dr. Peabody It's a chilling reminder of what one can become In the pursuit of desire
9: And
12: then our own Mr. Jonathan McKenzie Stood putting on a pair of spectacles Acting the part of an antique dealer Marker
11: Our windfalls are of various kinds. Some customers are ignorant, and then I touch a dividend on my superior knowledge. Some are dishonest, and in that case, I profit by my virtue.
16: Markheim had but just entered from the daylight streets, and his eyes had not yet grown familiar with the mingled shine and darkness in the shop. At these pointed words, and before the near presence of the flame, he blinked painfully and looked aside. You, come to me on Christmas Day when you know that I am
11: alone in my house, put up my shutters and make a point of refusing business. Well, you will have to pay for that. You will have to pay for my loss of time when I should be balancing my books. You will have to pay besides for a kind of manner that I remark in you today very strongly. I, sir, am the essence of discretion and ask no awkward questions. But when a customer cannot look me in the eye, He has to pay for it. You can give, as usual, a clear account of how you came into the possession of the object. (laughs) Still
16: your uncle's cabinet?
11: A remarkable collector, sir.
16: And the little pale, round-shouldered dealer stood almost on tiptoe, looking over the top of his gold spectacles and nodding his head with every mark of disbelief. Markheim returned his gaze with one of infinite pity and a touch of horror. This time, you are in error. I have not come
15: to sell, but to buy. I have no curios to dispose of. My uncle's cabinet is bare to the wainscot. Even were it still intact, I have done well on the stock exchange, and should more likely add to it than otherwise. And my errand today is simplicity itself. I seek a Christmas present for a lady, and certainly I owe you every excuse for thus disturbing you upon so small a matter. But the thing was neglected yesterday. I must produce my little compliment at dinner. And, as you very well know, a rich marriage is not a thing to be neglected.
16: There followed a pause, during which the dealer seemed to weigh the statement incredulously. The ticking of many clocks among the curious lumber of the shop and the faint rushing of the cabs in a near thoroughfare filled up the interval of silence. Well, sir.
11: Be it so, you are an old customer after all, and if, as you say, you have the chance of a good marriage, far be it from me to be an obstacle. Here is a nice thing for a lady now. This hand glass, 15th century warranted, comes from a good collection too, but I reserve the name in the interests of my customer, who was just like yourself, my dear sir, the nephew and sole heir of a remarkable collector.
16: The dealer... While he thus ran on in his dry and biting voice, had stooped to take the object from its place. And, as he had done so, a shock had passed through Markheim, a start both of hand and foot, a sudden leap of many tumultuous passions to the face. It passed as swiftly as it came, and left no trace beyond a certain trembling of the hand that now received the glass. A looking glass, he said hoarsely, and then paused and repeated it more clearly.
15: A looking glass for
16: Christmas? Surely not. And why not? Why not a looking glass? Markheim was looking upon him with an indefinable expression.
15: You ask me why not? Why, look here, look in it. Look at yourself. Do you like to see it? No, nor I, nor any man.
16: The little man had jumped back when Markheim had so suddenly confronted him with the mirror. But now, perceiving there was nothing worse on hand, he chuckled.
11: Your future lady, sir, must be pretty hard-favoured.
15: I ask you for a Christmas present and you give me this, this damned reminder of years and sins and follies, this hand conscience. Did you mean it? Had you any thought in your mind? Tell me. It will be better for you if you do. Come, tell me about yourself. I hazard a guess now that you are in secret a very charitable man.
16: The dealer looked closely at his companion. It was very odd. Markheim did not appear to be laughing. There was something in his face, like an eager sparkle of hope, but nothing of mirth.
15: What are you driving at? Not charitable? Not charitable, not pious, not scrupulous, unloving, unbeloved, a hand to get money, a safe to keep it, is that all? Dear God, man, is that all?
11: I will tell you what it is, but I see this is a love match of yours, and you have been drinking the lady's health.
15: Ah, ah, have you been in love... Tell me about that.
11: I, I in love, I never had the time, nor have I the time today for all this nonsense. Will you take the glass?
15: Where is the hurry? It is very pleasant to stand here talking and life is so short and insecure that I would not hurry away from any pleasure. No, not even from so mild a one as this. We should rather cling, cling to what little we can get. Like a man at a cliff's edge. Every second is a cliff, if you think upon it, a cliff a mile high, high enough if we fall to dash us out of every feature of humanity. Hence it is best to talk pleasantly. Let us talk of each other. Why should we wear this mask? Let us be confidential.
11: Who knows? We might become friends. I have just one word to say to you.
16: Either make your purchase or walk out of my shop. True, true. Enough fooling to business. Show me something else. The dealer stooped once more, this time to replace the glass upon the shelf, his thin blonde hair falling over his eyes as he did so. Markheim moved a little nearer, with one hand in the pocket of his greatcoat. He drew himself up and filled his lungs. At the same time, many different emotions were depicted together on his face. Terror, horror, and resolve. Fascination, and a physical repulsion. And through a haggard lift of his upper lip, his teeth looked out. This perhaps may suit. And then, as he began to rearise, Markheim bounded from behind upon his victim. The long, skewer-like dagger flashed and fell. The dealer struggled like a hen, striking his temple on the shelf, and then tumbled on the floor in a heap. Time had some score of small voices in that shop, some stately and slow as was becoming to their great age others garrulous and hurried. All these told out the seconds in an intricate chorus of tickings. Then the passage of a lad's feet, heavily running on the pavement, broke in upon these smaller voices and startled Markheim into the consciousness of his surroundings. He looked about him awfully. The candle stood on the counter, its flame solemnly wagging in a draught, and by that inconsiderable movement The whole room was filled with noiseless bustle and kept heaving like a sea, the tall shadows nodding, the gross blots of darkness swelling and dwindling as with respiration, the faces of the portraits and the China gods changing and wavering like images in water. The inner door stood ajar and peered into that leaguer of shadows with a long slit of daylight like a pointing finger. From these fear-stricken rovings, Markheim's eyes returned to the body of his victim, where it lay both humped and sprawling, incredibly small and strangely meaner than in life. In these poor, miserly clothes, in that ungainly attitude, the dealer lay like so much sawdust. Markheim had feared to see it, and lo, it was nothing. And yet, as he gazed, this bundle of old clothes and pool of blood... ...began to find eloquent voices. There it must lie. There was none to work the cunning hinges... ...or direct the miracle of locomotion. There it must lie till it was found. Found, I, and then... Then would this dead flesh lift up a cry... ...that would ring over England... ...and fill the world with the echoes of pursuit. I, dead or not, this was still the enemy. Time was that when the brains were out, he thought the first word struck into his mind. Time, now that the deed was accomplished, time which had closed for the victim, had become instant and momentous for the slayer. The thought was yet in his mind when first one and then another, with every variety of pace and voice, one deep as the bell from a cathedral turret, another ringing on its treble notes the prelude of a waltz. The clocks began to strike the hour of three in the afternoon, the sudden outbreak of so many tongues in that dumb chamber staggered him. He began to bestir himself, going to and fro with the candle, beleaguered by moving shadows and startled to the soul by chance reflections. In many rich mirrors, some of home designs, some from Venice or Amsterdam, he saw his face repeated and repeated, as it were an army of spies. His own eyes met and detected him. And the sound of his own steps, lightly as they fell, vexed the surrounding quiet. And still, as he continued to fill his pockets, his mind accused him with a sickening iteration of the thousand faults of his design. He should have chosen a more quiet hour. He should have prepared an alibi. He should not have used a knife. He should have been more cautious and only bound and gagged the dealer and not killed him. He should have been more bold, and killed the servant also. He should have done all things otherwise. Poignant regrets, weary, incessant toiling of the mind to change what was unchangeable. To plan what was now useless. To be the architect of the irrevocable past. Meanwhile, and behind all this activity, brute terrors, like the scurrying of rats in a deserted attic. Filled the more remote chambers of his brain with riot the hand of the constable would fall heavy on his shoulder and his nerves would jerk like a hooked fish or he beheld in galloping defile the dock the prison the gallows and the black coffin the terror of the people in the streets sat down before his mind like a besieging army it was impossible he thought that some rumour of the struggle must have reached their ears and set on edge their curiosity. And now, in all the neighbouring houses, he divined them sitting motionless and with uplifted ear. Solitary people, condemned to spend Christmas, dwelling alone on memories of the past, and now startlingly recalled from that tender exercise. Happy family parties struck into silence round the table, the mother still with raised finger, every degree and age and humor, but all by their own hearts, prying and hearkening and weaving the rope that was to hang him. Sometimes it seemed to him he could not move too softly. The clink of the tall bohemian goblets rang out loudly like a bell, and alarmed by the bigness of the ticking, he was tempted to stop the clocks. And then... Again, with a swift transition of his terrors, the very silence of the place appeared a source of peril and a thing to strike and freeze the passer-by. And he would step more boldly and bustle aloud among the contents of the shop and imitate, with elaborate bravado, the movements of a busy man at ease in his own house. But he was now so pulled about by different alarms that, While one portion of his mind was still alert and cunning, another trembled on the brink of lunacy. One hallucination in particular took a strong hold on his credulity. The neighbor, hearkening with white face beside his window, the passerby arrested by a horrible surmise on the pavement. These could at worst suspect they could not know. Through the brick walls and shuttered windows, only sounds could penetrate. But here, within the house, was he alone. He knew he was. He had watched the servant set forth sweethearting in her poor best, out for the day, written in every ribbon and smile. Yes, he was alone, of course. And yet, in the bulk of empty house about him, he could surely hear a stir of delicate footing. He was surely conscious, inexplicably conscious, of some presence. Aye, surely. To every room and corner of the house... His imagination followed it. And now it was a faceless thing, and yet had eyes to see with. And again it was a shadow of himself. And yet again behold the image of the dead dealer, re-inspired with cunning and hatred. At times, with a strong effort, he would glance at the open door which still seemed to repel his eyes. The house was tall, the skylight small and dirty, the day blind with fog the light that filtered down to the ground story was exceedingly faint and showed dimly on the threshold of the shop. And yet, in that strip of doubtful brightness, did there not hang wavering shadow? Suddenly, from the street outside, a very jovial gentleman began to beat with a staff on the shop door, accompanying his blows with shouts and railleries, in which the dealer was continually called upon by name. Markheim, smitten into ice, glanced at the dead man. But no, he lay quite still. He was fled away far beyond earshot of these blows and shoutings. He was sunk beneath seas of silence. And his name, which would once have caught his notice above the howling of a storm, had become an empty sound. And presently, the jovial gentleman desisted from his knocking and departed. Here was a broad hint to hurry what remained to be done, to get forth from this accusing neighborhood, to plunge into a bath of London multitudes, and to reach on the other side of day, that haven of safety and apparent innocence, his bed. One visitor had come. At any moment another might follow and be more obstinate. To have done the deed, and yet not to reap the profit, would be too abhorrent a failure. The money. That was now Markheim's concern. And as a means to that, the keys. He glanced over his shoulder at the open door, where the shadow was still lingering and shivering. And with no conscious repugnance of the mind, yet with a tremor of the belly, he drew near the body of his victim. The human character had quite departed. Like a suit, half stuffed with bran, the limbs lay scattered, The trunk doubled on the floor, and yet the thing repelled him. Although so dingy and inconsiderable to the eye, he feared it might have more significance to the touch. He took the body by the shoulders and turned it on its back. It was strangely light and supple, and the limbs, as if they had been broken, fell into the oddest postures face was robbed of all expression, but it was as pale as wax, and shockingly smeared with blood about one temple. That was, for Markheim, the one displeasing circumstance. It carried him back, upon the instant, to a certain fair day in a fisher's village. A grey day, a piping wind, a crowd upon the street, the blare of brasses, the booming of drums, the nasal voice of a ballad singer. And a boy going to and fro, buried overhead in the crowd, and divided between interest and fear, until, coming out upon the chief place of concourse, he beheld a booth and a great screen with pictures, dismally designed, garishly colored, Brownrigg with her apprentice, the Mannings with their murdered guest, where in the death grip of Thurtell a score besides of famous crimes. The thing was as clear as an illusion. He was once again that little boy. He was looking once again and with the same sense of physical revolt at these vile pictures. He was still stunned by the thumping of the drums. A bar of that day's music returned upon his memory and at that for the first time a qualm came over him. A breath of nausea sudden weakness of the joints which he must instantly resist and conquer he judged it more prudent to confront than to flee from these considerations looking the more heartily in the dead face bending his mind to realize the nature and greatness of his crime so little a while ago that face had moved with every change of sentiment that pale mouth had spoken that body had been all on fire with governable energies and now and by his act That piece of life had been arrested as the horologist, with interjected finger, arrests the beating of the clock. So he reasoned in vain. He could rise to no more remorseful consciousness. The same heart, which had shuddered before the painted effigies of crime, looked on its reality unmoved. At best, he felt a gleam of pity for one who had been endowed in vain with all those faculties that can make the world a garden of enchantment one who had never lived and who was now dead, but of penitence, no, not a tremor. With that, shaking himself clear of these considerations, he found the keys and advanced toward the open door of the shop. Outside, it had begun to rain smartly, and the sound of the shower upon the roof had banished silence. Like some dripping cavern, the chambers of the house were haunted by an incessant echoing, which filled the ear and mingled with the ticking of the clocks. And, as Markheim approached the door, he seemed to hear, in answer to his own cautious tread, the steps of another foot withdrawing up the stair. The shadow still palpitated loosely on the threshold. He threw a ton's weight of resolve upon his muscles and drew back the door. The faint, foggy daylight glimmered dimly on the bare floor and stairs on the bright suit of armor posted, halberd in hand, upon the landing, and on the dark wood carvings and framed pictures that hung against the yellow panels of the wainscot. So loud was the beating of the rain through all the house that, in Markheim's ears, it began to be distinguished into many different sounds. Footsteps and sighs, the tread of regiments marching in the distance, the chink of money in the counting, and the creaking of doors, held stealthily ajar, appeared to mingle with the patter of the drops upon the cupola and the gushing of the water in the pipes. The sense that he was not alone grew upon him to the verge of madness. On every side he was haunted and begirt by presences. He heard the moving in the upper chambers. From the shop, he heard the dead man getting to his legs as he began with a great effort to mount the stairs, feet fled quietly before him and followed stealthily behind. If he were but death, he thought, how tranquilly he would possess his soul. And then again, and hearkening with ever-fresh attention, he blessed himself for that unresting sense which held the outposts and stood a trusty sentinel upon his life. His head turned continually on his neck. His eyes, which seemed starting from their orbits, scouted on every side, and on every side were half rewarded as with the tale of something nameless vanishing. The four-and-twenty steps to the first floor were four-and-twenty agonies. On that first story, the door stood ajar, three of them like three ambushes, shaking his nerves like the throats of cannon. He could never again, he felt be sufficiently immured and fortified from men's observing eyes. He longed to be home, girt in by walls, buried among bedclothes, and invisible to all but God. And at that thought, he wondered a little, recollecting tales of other murderers and the fear they were said to entertain of heavenly avengers. It was not so, at least, with him. He feared the laws of nature, lest... In their callous and immutable procedure they should preserve some damning evidence of his crime he feared tenfold more with a slavish superstitious terror some scission in the continuity of man's experience some willful illegality of nature he played a game of skill depending on the rules calculating consequence from cause and what if nature as the defeated tyrant overthrew the chessboard should break the mold of their succession. The like had befallen Napoleon, so writers said, when the winter changed the time of its appearance. The like might befall Markheim. The solid walls might become transparent and reveal his doings like those of bees in a glass hive. The stout planks might yield under his foot like quicksands and detain him in their clutch. Aye, and there were soberer accidents. That might destroy him. If, for instance, the house should fall and imprison him beside the body of his victim. Or the house next door should fly on fire. And the firemen invade him from all sides. These things he feared. And, in a sense, these things might be called the hands of God reached forth against sin. But about God himself, he was at ease. His act was doubtless exceptional, but so were his excuses, which God knew. It was there, and not among men, that he felt sure of justice. When he got safe into the drawing room and shut the door behind him, he was aware of a respite from alarms. The room was quite dismantled, uncarpeted besides, and strewn with packing cases and incongruous furniture several great pier glasses in which he beheld himself at various angles like an actor on a stage many pictures framed and unframed standing with their faces to the wall a fine sheraton sideboard a cabinet of marquetry and a great old bed with tapestry hangings the windows opened to the floor but by great good fortune the lower part of the shutters had been closed and this concealed him from the neighbors here then Markheim drew in a packing case before the cabinet, and began to search among the keys. It was a long business, for there were many, and it was irksome besides, for, after all, there might be nothing in the cabinet, and time was on the wing. But the closeness of the occupation sobered him. With the tail of his eye he saw the door, even glanced at it from time to time directly, like a besieged commander, pleased to verify the good estate of his defenses. But in truth, he was at peace. The rain falling in the street sounded natural and pleasant. Presently, on the other side, the notes of a piano were wakened to the music of a hymn, and the voices of many children took up the air and words. How stately, how comfortable was the melody! How fresh the youthful voices! Markheim gave ear to it smilingly as he sorted out the keys. And his mind was thronged with answerable ideas and images. Church-going children and the pealing of the high organ. Children afield, bathers by the brookside, ramblers on the Bramley common, kite flyers in the windy and cloud-navigated sky. And then, at another cadence of the hymn, back again to church the somnolence of summer sundays and the high genteel voice of the parson which he smiled a little to recall and the painted jacobean tombs and the dim lettering of the ten commandments in the chancel and as he sat thus at once busy and absent he was startled to his feet a flash of ice a flash of fire a bursting gush of blood went over him and then he stood transfixed and thrilling a step mounted the stair slowly and steadily, and presently a hand was laid upon the knob, and the lock clicked and the door opened. Fear held Markheim in a vice. What to expect he knew not, whether the dead man walking, or the official ministers of human justice, or some chance witness blindly stumbling in to consign him to the gallows. But when a face was thrust into the aperture, glanced round the room, looked at him, nodded, and smiled as if in friendly recognition, and then withdrew again, and the door closed behind it. His fear broke loose from his control in a hoarse cry. At the sound of this, the visitant returned. Did you call me? He asked pleasantly. And with that, he entered the room and closed the door behind him. Markheim stood and gazed at him with all his eyes. Perhaps there was a film upon his sight. But the outlines of the newcomers seemed to change and waver like those of the idols in the wavering candlelight of the shop. And at times he thought he knew him. And at times he thought he bore a likeness to himself. And always, like a lump of living terror, there lay in his bosom the conviction that this thing was not of the earth and not of God. And yet the creature had a strange air of the commonplace as he stood looking on Markheim with a smile. And when he added,
14: You're looking for the money, I believe?
16: It was in the tones of everyday politeness. Markheim made no answer.
14: I should warn you that the maid has left her sweetheart earlier than usual and will soon be here. If Mr. Markheim is found in this house, I need not describe to him the consequences. You know me? You have long been a favorite of mine, and I have long observed and often sought to help you. What are you? The devil? What I may be cannot affect the service I propose to render you. It can, it does, be helped by you.
15: No, never, not by you. You do not know me yet, thank God you do not know me.
14: I know you. I know you to the soul.
15: Know me? Who can do so? My life is but a travesty and slander on myself. I have lived to belie my nature. All men do. All men are better than this disguise that grows about and stifles them. You see each dragged away by life, like one whom bravos have seized and muffled in a cloak. If they had their own control, if you could see their faces, they would be altogether different. They would shine out for heroes and saints. I am worse than most. Myself is more overlaid. My excuse is known to me and God, but had I the time I could disclose myself. To me? To you before all, I supposed you were intelligent. I thought since you exist, you would prove a reader of the heart, and yet you would propose to judge me by my acts. Think of it, my acts. I was born and I have lived in a land of giants. Giants have dragged me by the wrists since I was born out of my mother, the giants of circumstance, and you would judge me by my acts. But can you not look within? Can you not understand that evil is hateful to me? Can you not see within me the clear writing of conscience, never blurred by any willful sophistry, although too often disregarded? Can you not read me for a thing that surely must be common as humanity, the unwilling sinner?
14: All this is very feelingly expressed, but it regards me not. These points of consistency are beyond my province, and I care not in the least by what compulsion you may have been dragged away, so as you are but carried in the right direction. But time flies, the servant delays, looking in the faces of the crowd and at the pictures on the hoardings. But still she keeps moving nearer, and remember, It is as if the gallows itself were striding toward you through the Christmas streets. Shall I help you, I, who know all? Shall I tell you where to find the money? For what price? I offer you the service for a Christmas gift.
16: Markheim could not refrain from smiling with a kind of bitter triumph. No, I will take
15: nothing at your hands. If I were dying of thirst and it was your hand that put the pitcher to my lips, I should find the courage to refuse. It may be credulous, but I will do nothing to commit myself to evil.
14: I have no objection to a deathbed repentance. Because you disbelieve their efficacy? I do not say so. But I look on these things from a different side. And when the life is done, my interest falls. The man has lived to serve me to spread black looks under color of religion or to sow tares in the wheat field, as you do in a course of weak compliance with desire. Now that he draws so near to his deliverance, he can add but one act of service, to repent, to die smiling, and thus to build up in confidence and hope the more timorous of my surviving followers. I am not so hard a master. Try me, accept my help. Please yourself in life as you have done hitherto. Please yourself more amply. Spread your elbows at the board. And when the night begins to fall and the curtains to be drawn, I tell you, for your greater comfort, that you will find it even easy to compound your quarrel with your conscience and to make a truckling peace with God. I came but now from such a deathbed, and the room was full of sincere mourners listening to the man's last words. And when I looked into that face, which had been set as a flint against mercy. I found it smiling with hope.
15: And do you then suppose me such a creature? Do you think I have no more generous aspirations than to sin and sin and sin and at last sneak into heaven? My heart rises at the thought. Is this then your experience of mankind? Or is it because you find me with red hands that you presume such baseness? And is this crime of murder indeed so impious as to dry up the very springs of good?
14: Murder is to me no special category. All sins are murder, even all life is war. I behold your race, like starving mariners on a raft, plucking crusts out of the hands of famine and feeding on each other's lives. I follow sins beyond the moment of their acting. I find in all that the last consequence is death. And to my eyes, the pretty maid who thwarts her mother with such taking graces on a question of a ball, drips no less visibly with human gore than such a murderer as yourself. Do I say that I follow sins? I follow virtues also. They differ not by the thickness of a nail. They are both scythes for the reaping angel of death. Evil for which I live consists not in action, but in character." The bad man is dear to me, not the bad act, whose fruits, if we could follow them far enough down the hurtling cataract of the ages, might yet be found more blessed than those of the rarest virtues. And it is not because you have killed a dealer, but because you are Markheim, that I offered to forward your escape.
15: I will lay my heart open to you. This crime on which you find me is my last. On my way to it, I have learned many lessons. Itself is a lesson, a momentous lesson. Hitherto I have been driven with revolt to what I would not. I was a bond slave to poverty, driven and scourged. There are robust virtues that can stand in these temptations. Mine was not so, I had a thirst of pleasure. But today, and out of this deed, I pluck both warning and riches Both the power and a fresh resolve to be myself. I become in all things a free actor in the world. I begin to see myself all changed. These hands, the agents of good, this heart and peace. Something comes over me out of the past. Something of what I have dreamed on Sabbath evenings to the sound of the church organ. Of what I forecast when I shed tears over noble books or talked an innocent child with my mother there lies my life I have wandered a few years but now I see once more my city of destination
14: you are to lose this money on the stock exchange I think and there if I mistake not you have already lost some thousands
15: ah but this time I have a sure thing
14: this time again you will lose
15: ah but I keep back the half
14: that also you will lose
15: well then what matter Say it be lost. Say I am plunged again in poverty. Shall one part of me and that the worse, continue until the end to override the better? Evil and good run strong in me, hailing me both ways. I do not love the one thing I love all. I can conceive great deeds, renunciations, martyrdoms, and though I be fallen to such a crime as murder, pity is no stranger to my thoughts. I pity the poor who knows their trials better than myself. I pity and help them. I prize love. I love honest laughter. There is no good thing nor true thing on earth, but I love it from my heart. And are my vices only to direct my life and my virtues to lie without effect, like some passive lumber of the mind? Not so. Good also is a spring of acts.
14: For six and 30 years that you have been in this world, Through many changes of fortune and varieties of humor, I have watched you steadily fall. Fifteen years ago, you would have started at a theft. Three years back, you would have blenched at the name of murder. Is there any crime? Is there any cruelty or meanness from which you still recoil? Five years from now, I shall detect you in the fact. Downward, downward lies your way. Nor can anything but death avail to stop you.
15: It is true. I have in some degree complied with evil, but it is so with all. The very saints in the mere exercise of living grow less dainty and take on the tone of their surroundings.
14: I will propound to you one simple question, and as you answer I shall read to you your moral horoscope. You have grown in many things more lax. Possibly you do right to be so, and at any account it is the same with all men. But granting that, Are you in any one particular, however trifling, more difficult to please with your own conduct? Or do you go in all things with a looser rein? In any one?
15: No, in none, I have gone down in all.
14: Then content yourself with what you are, for you will never change. And the words of your part on this stage are irrevocably written down.
16: Markheim stood for a long while silent, And indeed it was the visitor who first broke the silence.
14: That being said, shall I show you the money? And Grace? Have you not tried it? Wasn't it two or three years ago? Did I not see you on the platform of revival meetings? And was not your voice the loudest in the hymn? It is true. And I see clearly
15: what remains for me by way of duty. I thank you for these lessons from my soul.
16: My eyes are opened and I behold myself at last for what I am. At this moment, the sharp note of the doorbell rang through the house, and the visitor, as though this were some concerted signal for which he had been waiting, changed at once in his demeanor.
14: The maid, she has returned just as I forewarned you, and there is now before you one more difficult passage. Her master, you must say, is ill. You must let her in with an assured but rather serious countenance. No smiles, no overacting, and I promise you success. Once the girl within, and the door closed, the same dexterity that has already rid you of the dealer will relieve you of this last danger in your path. Thenceforward, you have the whole evening, the whole night, if needful, to ransack the treasures of the house and to make good your safety this is help that comes to you with the mask of danger up up friend your life hangs trembling in the scales up
16: and act markheim steadily regarded his counselor
15: if i be condemned to evil acts there is still one door of freedom open i can cease from action if my life be an ill thing i can lay it down though i be as you say truly At the beck of every small temptation, I can yet, by one decisive gesture, place myself beyond the reach of all. My love of good is damned to barrenness. It may, and let it be, but I have still my hatred of evil. And from that, to your galling disappointment, you shall see that I can draw both
16: energy and courage. The features of the visitor began to undergo a wonderful and lovely change. They brightened and softened with a tender triumph, and even as they brightened, faded and dislimbed. But Markheim did not pause to watch or understand the transformation. He opened the door and went downstairs very slowly, thinking to himself. His past went soberly before him. He beheld it as it was, ugly and strenuous like a dream, random as chance medley, a scene of defeat. Life, as he thus reviewed it, tempted him no longer. But on the farther side, he perceived a quiet haven for his bark. He paused in the passage and looked into the shop, where the candles still burned by the dead body. It was strangely silent. Thoughts of the dealer swarmed into his mind as he stood gazing. And then the bell once more broke out with impatient clamor. He confronted the maid upon the threshold with something like a smile. You had better go for the police. I have killed your master.
5: Bravo, such a poignant reminder of the human condition. This Yule celebration has proven to be much more than mere merriment. It's a contemplation of our very nature. The stories we tell, the characters we portray, they are but reflections of ourselves, our fears, our desires. And tonight, we have seen the depths to which these can take us.
1: As the quarter chimes of midnight resounded, I felt a subtle shift in the grand hall. My heart quickened as I witnessed the room undergo a remarkable transformation. The room's previous arrangements disappeared, leaving an empty space. Then, with a sense of awe, I watched as a single wing-back chair appeared seemingly out of thin air. It materialized gracefully in the center of the room, seemingly guided by some unseen force. It stood alone, an island of comfort in the vastness of the Grand Hall. The table, candle and the book, Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol also emerged, finding their designated places next to this chair. This exquisite seat had been specially commissioned from the skilled carpenter, a throne in its own right, for Mr. Hendrickson's portrayal of Ebenezer Scrooge. The Grand Hall itself effortlessly shifted into a perfect replica of Ebenezer Scrooge's office,
16: Hear you now, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. The tale of a miserly man who comes to realize the true spirit of Christmas. When this story first appeared over 174 years ago, few observed Christmas other than a church. Few employers gave workers off for the holiday, and the jolly country celebrations of the past were largely forgotten within the cities. But this little story helped transform Christmas from a staid religious holiday into the joyous season of famine, faith, feasting and goodwill that it is to this very day. Dickens' little ghost story of Christmas opens in London on a cold, snowy Christmas Eve in the year 1843. of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am about to relate. Scrooge knew he was dead? Well, of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executive, sole legatee, sole friend, and sole mourner. Scrooge never painted Marley's name off the sign over the warehouse door, and there it remained for years afterward. Scrooge and Marley. People new to the trade would come in and call Scrooge, Scrooge, or sometimes Marley. He answered to both names this was all the same to him. Ah, but he was a tight-fisted hand of the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secretive and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. He carried his icy temperature with him everywhere. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thaw them out one degree, even at Christmas. Once upon a time, in all the good days of the year, on Christmas Eve, Scrooge was busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, and although it was only four o'clock, it was quite dark already. Fog had choked the streets, and landlighters were escorting people to and fro. Scrooge sat at his desk, totting up ledgers, accounts, and balances. The door to his office was open so that he'd keep an eye on his clerk, Bob Cratchit, who sat in a dismal little cell copying letters. Scrooge's office has a small fire of its own, but the clerk's fire was so small it was hardly worth mentioning. But the poor clerk never dared enter Scrooge's office to replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his office. For every time he tried. Cratchit! What do you think you're doing? Another step and you'll find yourself without employment. Now get back to your station. So he placed his coat and scarf back on and used a candle to warm his fingers in between letters. A merry Christmas, Uncle Scrooge. God save you. Ah, humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle not believe that I'm sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then. What reason have you to be dismal? Morose? You're rich enough. Don't you taunt me, Fred. Bah! Oh, come, don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. A pox of one Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a
13: time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and then buried with a stake of holly through his heart. (laughs) Uncle, nephew, keep Christmas in your way and let me keep it
16: in mine. Keep it, but you don't keep it. Then let me leave it alone then. Much good may it do you. What good has it ever done you? There are many things from which I might derive good, but which I had not profit at Christmas among the rest. But I'm sure I thought of it as a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in which people open their hearts freely. And though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, so I say, God bless it. The speech so moved Bob Cratchit that he forgot himself for a moment and applauded. Cratchit! Another sound keep Christmas by losing your position. I'm sorry, sir. Well, nephew, why are you here? To ask you to come dine with us tomorrow. Dine with you? Never. I'll see myself in hell first.
7: But why,
17: uncle?
16: Why? Why did you get married?
17: Because I fell in love.
16: Because you fell in love. Good afternoon. A Merry Christmas to you, Mr. Cratchit, and to your family.
13: How is Tiny Tim? And next to him, my clerk, Bob Cratchit, wife and family, 16 shillings a week, talking about a Merry Christmas. Oh, retired of They're all mad. The whole lot of them, mad. Yeah.
16: I'm sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute, but I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon! And a Happy New Year! Good afternoon! Yeah. Suddenly, two portly gentlemen entered the shop. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Do I have the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. In fact, he died seven years ago this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. Liberality? At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessities. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons, sir. And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are. I wish we could say they were not. I am glad to hear it. From what you were saying, I thought something had stopped them in their useful course. A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. Who we choose this time because it is a time of all others where want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. Sir, so what may we put you down for? Nothing. You wish to remain anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I hope to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Well, many can't go there, and many would rather die.
13: Well, if then, if they'd rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population.
16: Good afternoon. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, The gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself, and in a more facetious temper than usual. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting house arrived. Mr. Scrooge, it's closing up time. Shh!
13: Now, it is closing time. Uh, You'll want your day tomorrow, I suppose.
16: It's quite convenient, sir. It is not convenient, and it is not fair if I was to stop you half a crown for it, you think yourself ill-used, I'd be bound. And yet, you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work.
17: It's only once a year, sir.
16: Ha! Poor excuse of picking a man's pocket every 24th of December. Very well, then. If you must have the whole day, be here all the earlier the next morning. I will, sir. A merry... Married... <laughs> Good night, sir. Hamburg! Scrooge took his usual melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers, and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in a chambers which once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge knew its every stone was faint to grope with his hands. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door except that it was very large let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner that afternoon. Then let any man explain to me if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley was not angry or ferocious, but look at Scrooge as Marley used to look before Scrooge could say anything, it was the knocker again. He tried to say, pack, pack, but stopped at the first syllable. Scrooge entered and locked himself in, double locked himself in, which was not his custom. He lit only one candle, for darkness was cheap and Scrooge liked it. Being terrified by what he saw, then upon reflection wondered if it was a prank, he began to search the house, starting down below and then up the stairs every shadow making him turn and glance back. Sitting room, bedroom, lumber room, all as they should be. Small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and a little saucepan of gruel. Scrooge was catching a cold. He changed into his evening wear and sat by the fire to take his gruel. His glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell that hung in the it was with great astonishment and a sense of inexplicable dread that, as he looked,
13: he saw this bell begin to swing.
16: It rang out, and then, so did every bell in the house. What? What's? The front door! The side door! The bell by my bed, the one at the tower, and on the side door! Who rings them? And just as suddenly as they started, they ceased altogether. To be replaced by another sound.
13: Down below, deep in the cellar, as if someone was dragging something very heavy across the casks. As if they were dragging chains in the hall.
16: Scrooge suddenly remembered hearing that ghosts and haunted houses dragged chains. Closer and closer the sound was coming. It's Humbug! I won't believe
13: it! I won't! <laughs>
16: what is that? The same face. The very same. Marley. He bore a chain that was clasped about his middle and wound behind him like a tail. It was made of ledgers, cash boxes, keys or rotten steel. His figure was transparent, that Scrooge, looking through him, could see his watch in his waistcoat pocket. How now? What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who
13: I was. Yeah. You're particular for a ghost Who are you then? In life, I was your partner, Sheik
16: Mali. Can you sit down? I can. As a little thing affects them, a slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be a bit of undigested beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. <laughs> There's more gravy than grave about you, whatever you are. Humbug, I say.
12: Humbug. Ah!
13: A dreadful apparition. Why do you trouble me? Man, worldly mind. Do you believe in me or not?
16: I believe in you. I believe in you absolutely. But why do spirits walk the earth? And why do you come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide.
13: If that spirit does not go forth in life, he is condemned
16: to do so after death. He is doomed to wander
1: through the world.
3: But-
13: my link and yard by yard while on earth and now I could never be rid of it. Is its pattern strange to you? What would you know of the strong court? You bear yourself, Eleniza. It was as full, as heavy, and as long as this, these seven. as yours shall be. My spirit like yours never
16: walked beyond the narrow limits of our county But, Jacob, you were always such a good man of business.
13: BUSINESS! Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water
16: in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never once raised them to that blessed star that led three wise men to a humble state? Mali, tell me more, but speak comfort to me. I have none to give. None Comfort comes from other sources, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed
13: by other ministers than I. To other kinds of men than you. How I appear tonight in the shape that you can see, I do not know. But I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day, trying to reach you. I am here tonight to warn you and offer you a chance of hope of escaping my Chance of my procuring Ebenezer. You were always a good friend to me, Jacob. Thank you. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is this the chance of hope that you mentioned? It is. Well, in that case, never mind. I think I'd rather not.
10: Without their visits, you cannot hope
13: to shun the path I tread. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over with Jacob? Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. And the third when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see. Seven years dead, and traveling all the time. I cannot rest, I cannot stay, I cannot linger anywhere. Is it my fate that is so strange to you? Come see.
16: Come, Ebenezer. The ghost of Jacob Marley led Scrooge to the window and below he saw a strange sight. Marley pointed out the window. The night was cold and frosty. The street below and the skies above were suddenly filled with phantoms, all chained and in various states of agony. Scrooge recognized some of them as businessmen he once knew. They seek to interfere for good in human matters, and have lost the power
13: forever. Beware, beware, beware,
16: lest their dreadful fate Scrooge was terrified as Marley and the other specters vanished into the night. The street was still and silent once again. Scrooge closed the curtains after locking the window and ran to his bed. He fell asleep without undressing. It was very dark in the room when Scrooge awoke. Suddenly, a glow began to fill the room. It was a strange figure not so much like a child as like an old man. It was dressed in robes of white. In contrast to its robe, the hem of the garment was trimmed with summer flowers. About its head shot a beam of light much like a candle, illuminating the entire room. Scrooge covered his eyes, for it blinded him. In one hand, the figure held a sprig of holly, and in the other, under its arm, was a large cap that oddly resembled a candle snuff. The gaze was gentle, but yet filled with a knowing
13: wisdom. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I am. Who and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past,
16: long past. Your past. Perhaps you would do me a favor and put upon your head that cap that you hold in your hand.
13: I bear the light of truth. Would you use
17: this cap to put it out? Is it not enough that men like you, whose
16: passions made this cap and forced me to wear it low upon my brow? I beg your pardon, I had no intention of offending. Uh, what's your business with me?
17: It is for your welfare that I appear. <laughs>
16: much obliged to you, but I feel that a night of uninterrupted sleep would be more conclusive to my welfare. Be careful, Ebenezer Scrooge. I am speaking
13: of your reclamation for God. Oh. Well, if it's reclamation, then let's get on with it. Hmm. Take heed, rise
17: and walk with me.
16: Through the window.
17: Are you afraid?
16: I am mortal and liable to fall.
13: Bear but a touch of my hand, and you will be upheld in more than this.
16: As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open with fields on either side. The city had entirely vanished
13: to be replaced by a clear, cold winter day with
16: snow upon the ground. Good heavens! I know this place! I, I was a boy here! Your lip is trembling.
17: And what is that on your cheek?
16: The cold. Conduct me on, spirit. Do you not remember the way? Remember it? I could walk it blindfolded.
17: Strange to have forgotten it for so many years.
16: They walked along the road leading into a country village, where Scrooge could see a carriage from the boys leaving the school just ahead. Why, that's David Masterson and Robert Estes. Hello, boys. Hello. They can't,
17: Ebenezer. These are merely shadows of the things that have been. They had no consciousness of us. The school is not quite deserted. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still.
16: Poor boy. My mother died, giving birth to my sister. My father grew morose and seemed to begrudge us both ever after.
3: Let us see another Christmas.
16: Scrooge saw himself grow older as the years passed before his eyes. A young man saw the solitary child once was. His solemn reflections
13: were interrupted by an unexpected visitor.
17: Dear, dear brother, I've come to bring you home! Home, little friend. Yes, home for good and all. Father was so much kinder than he used to be. He was in a pleasant mood just the other night, so that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home. And he said, yes, you should. And he sent me to bring you, Ebenezer. Ebenezer, Father has arranged an apprenticeship for you. You're to be a man and begin your career. You'll never have to spend another moment of this dreadful school. But first, we'll be together all Christmas long and have the merriest time in the world. Come, Ebenezer, pack your things. The carriage is just outside. Friend, are you sure Father's ready to have me home? Oh yes, I'm sure of it. But where am I to be apprenticed? You will work for a wonderful man, Mr. Fezziwig, who keeps a warehouse. Now come, you mustn't keep the carriage waiting. Your sister was a frail creature, and often ill.
16: but she had a large heart. So she had spirit, so she had.
17: Your sister died a young woman, but you did have a child, Emily. One son, true your nephew. He has your sister's eyes.
16: So he does, Spirit. Come along, Ebenezer. It is time to see another Christmas. They were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city. Here, too, it was Christmas time again. But it was evening, and the street lights were lit up. Do you know this warehouse in London town? Know it? I was apprenticed here! Look there! Why it's so Fezziwig! Bless his heart! It's Fezziwig! Alive again! And there, there, there is Dick Wilkins. We were the best of friends.
13: Yo ho there,
16: Ebenezer! Dick!
13: No more work tonight, my boys! It's Christmas Eve! Clear all the nonsense away, all of you. We must make room. Life is too short for our work and no play. I say it's time for a party. Hi ho, Dick! Julia up, Ebenezer!
16: It was done in less than a minute. Every movable thing was packed off, as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore. There were Christmas screens and Chinese lanterns, candles and a Yule log. In came a fiddler with a music book. In came Mrs. Fezziwig and the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. Then came the six young men whose hearts they broke. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. There were dances and there were games, there was cake, a great piece of cold roast and mince pies and plenty to drink.
17: It's such a small thing to make the silly people feel so much gratitude and joy.
16: A small thing?
17: Is it not? After all, what did he do, this pheasant? Spent a few pounds on a party. Does he deserve such praise as this?
16: It isn't that spirit! Why, Mister Fuzzy, we got the power to make us happy or unhappy. He can make our work pleasant or miserable, just in the way he looks at us and the way that he addresses us. A thousands of little things add
17: up, you know, until the happiness he gives. Is as great as it because of fortune and and uh, what is it?
16: Nothing. Something, I think. No, no, it's just a. I would have liked to be able to say a word or two to my clock just now. That's all. Come Ebenezer,
17: my time grew short. Look.
16: Again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life. His face didn't bear the harsh and rigid lines of later years, but there was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye, which showed the passion that had taken
13: root.
17: To you it matters little, very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in the time to come,
16: as I would have tried to do,
17: I have no just cause to grieve.
16: What idol has displaced you? A
17: golden one.
16: Now there's a double standard for you. All the world speaks so vehemently against poverty, yet it condemns the pursuit of wealth just as harshly.
17: You fear the world too much, Ebenezer. All your other hopes have merged into the one hope of eluding the disdain of others. I've seen your noble virtues fall away one by one, until nothing is left but one master passion. The pursuit of profit. It consumes you.
16: What then? Even if I've grown wiser and more astute, I haven't changed my feelings towards you.
17: Oh, Ebenezer, our promise to one another is an old one. We made it when we were both young and poor and happy to remain so until we could improve our fortunes together by patience and hard work. But you've changed. You are not the same man. Tell me, Ebenezer, if all this had not happened, would you seek me out and try to win me now? A poor, dowerless girl with nothing to bring to a marriage? No. Just as I thought. You may feel sad now, Ebenezer, but I have no doubt that you will dismiss the thought of me very soon as if you were glad to have awakened from a bad dream.
16: May you be happy in the life you've chosen. Go after her. You fool, go after her!
13: I should have gone after her.
16: I almost went after her. Almost
13: carries no weight, especially in matters of the heart.
17: And you did a heart, didn't you, Ebenezer? Spirit,
16: why do you torture me? Conduct me home! There is
17: one more shadow
16: to see. Show me no more! Leave me! Haunt me no longer! Scrooge grasped the card from under the spirit's arm and began to push it down upon its head, to blight out that blinding glow. As he pushed, feeling as though he were wrestling a bear, the spirit's voice echoed in his ears.
13: These are the shadows of
17: things that have been they are what they are
13: do not blame
16: me. Scrooge found himself alone in his room, feeling exhausted from the dizzying experience with the ghost of Christmas past. His head had just barely hit the pillow when he had fallen asleep. The words of Jacob Marley and wondered where the second specter would appear. He slowly became aware of a strange glow emanating from his sitting room. <laughs> oh, Scrooge! Scrooge! Screech. Get up in there, you funny little man! As Scrooge enters into the room, there sat before him a jolly giant, an impressive figure in full beard, wearing a green robe trimmed with white fur and crowned with a holly leaf. He was seated in a chair lit with a thousand lights, bedecked with mistletoe, and heaped with a feast fit for a king. Come, come here and know me better. Spirit of the Christmas present, look upon me. You have never seen the likes of me before, have you? <laughs> no, never. You've never walked forth with any of my other brothers, or in these years. No, I don't think I have. Uh, have you had many brothers, Spirit?
6: <laughs>
16: <laughs> More than eighteen hundred. <laughs> I must admit, I found it hard to believe you'd be as horrible as my brother said you'd be. But now that I look at you, I see they were understanding the truth. A little. Here, drink some of this. What is it? Taste it. It's wonderful. I've never tasted anything like it. Of course you haven't. That is the milk of human kindness. There is much to be learned out there in the world, Ebenezer. Conduct me where you will, Spirit. Last night I learned a lesson which is working now. If you have ought to teach me, allow me to profit from it. Please, conduct me on. Touch my room. (laughs) They stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. The shops were still half open, radiant in their glory. There were pears and apples, clustered high in blooming pyramids. All around were people of various cases running to and fro, eager to get their last-minute Christmas shopping done. The sight of these revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway and sprinkled incense over their dinners. Now it was a very uncommon kind of incense, for once or twice when there were angry words between some dinner carriers. Aye, watch out! Ye watch where you go in, you!
6: Oh,
16: look. it's it's a shame to call on Christmas Day. So it is. A Merry Christmas to you, and to you, sir. Spirit, is there a particular flavour which you sprinkle from your torch? That is indeed. My own. Would applied to any kind of dinner on this game, to any kindly given... Poor one most of all. Why do a poor one most? Because he needs it most. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature, and his sympathy for all poor men, that eventually led him straight to Scrooge's class. And on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling. Do I need to go in there? It will cost you nothing. Which I suppose is good news for you. But can they see me? No. Which I would say is good news for them.
7: <laughs>
16: <laughs> then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, dressed out poorly in a threadbare gown, but decorated with ribbons, which were quite festive-looking. She was laying the tablecloth when the two small Cratchits, a boy and a girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the bakers they'd smelt their goose and knew it for their own. Whatever's keeping father and tiny Tim? And Martha wasn't
17: as late as last Christmas day by half an hour. Here's Martha, mother. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are. We'd have a great deal of work to finish up last night, and I had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind, as long as you're here.
16: And then came Bob, the father, with his red their clothes donned up and rushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. And how did little Tim behave? Was well, good as gold and better.
17: Somehow he gets thoughtful for sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you've ever heard. He told me that he'd hoped that people saw him in the church because he is a cripple and that it might be pleasant for them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame
16: beggars walk and blind men see. At last the dishes were settled, and grace was said. Succeeded by a breathless pause, there never was such a goose. Its tenderness and flavor, eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. There is nothing of high mark in this. We are not a handsome family. They are not well dressed. Their shoes are far from being waterproof. their clothes are scanty, and Bob might know the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they are happy, grateful, pleased with
17: one another, and contented with the time. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears.
16: God bless us.
17: God bless us.
16: Everyone. Spirit, tell me of tiny timberly. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner. And the crutch are alone and carefully
13: preserved. And if these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, 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 no kind spirit. Say he will be spared.
16: If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him. The
13: what then? If he is late to die, he would better do it and decrease the surplus population. Ah. Ma- Forbear that wicked cat until you have discovered what the surface is and where it is. Who are you to decide what men shall live and what men shall die? It may very well be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child.
17: Now to the founder of the feast. A Merry Christmas to Mr. Scrooge. The founder of the feast, indeed! I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I'd hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children, Christmas Day—it should be Christmas Day, I'm sure. But one who drinks ale to such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man is Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. But my dear, Christmas Day—it's Christmas Day, Mamma. Oh, very well. I'll drink to his help for your sake and the days, not for his.
16: Long live to him. A Merry Christmas Day and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. <laughs> it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavily. And as Scrooge and the Spirit went along the street, the brightness of the roaring fires in the kitchens, parlors, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and deserted place. My time grows short. A Spirit's life so brief. My time in this world is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight? Tonight at midnight. The time is drawing near. Forgive me, spirit, if I am not justified in asking, but I see something strange and not belonging to you, protruding there, beneath your robe. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw for the flesh that is on it. Look here. Boy and girl. Ragged, scowling, wolfish, where graceful youth should have filled their features out, a stale and shrivelled hand had pinched and twisted, them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, demons lurked. Spirit, are they yours? Oh,
13: no, they are mine's. The boy is ignorance. This girl is want.
16: Beware them both and all their kind and most of all, beware this boy. For upon his brow is written the word, Doom. Unless the writing be erased, if you deny him, slander those who tell others about him. Admit he exists and do nothing about it. That doom will engulf you. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no
13: Workhouses.
16: Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Are
1: there no workhouses? From the back of the hall, a figure emerges. it Come back! I wish to talk! It's like watching a shadow take form, a towering presence draped in robes so dark they seem to swallow the light. They glide past and a chill runs down my spine. There's an air of awe mixed with a tinge of apprehension.
16: I am in the presence of the spirit of Christmas yet to come. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. Is that not so, spirit? Ghost of the future, I fear you more than any specter I have seen. Will you not speak to me? Very well, lead on then, the night is passing fast and it is precious time to me, lead on spirit, lead on! Stock exchange. It's a second home to me. No, I don't know anything about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Why, what was the matter with him? I thought he'd
13: never die. Oh, God knows. What's he done with his money?
16: I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. I only know he hasn't left it to me.
2: <laughs>
16: <laughs> well, it's likely to be a very cheap funeral. I don't know anyone who would go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. I don't mind going if lunch is provided, but I must be fed for all the trouble it's worth.
7: Well, off
16: to business. Goodbye. Have these men no sense of decency or decorum?
13: Spirit, what is this? Why am I seeing
16: this? went into an obscure part of town where Scrooge had never been before. The streets were foul and terrible. The people drunken, slipshod, ugly. The whole quarter reeked with crime, filth,
17: and misery. Mm, I was here first. Mrs. Dilber shall be after me. Isn't this something, John? All of us met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place. Come in and sit.
13: Don't be shy. We're all suitable to our calling. We're well
17: matched to be sure. (laughs) Come in. What odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Dilber? Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. It's true, indeed. No man more so. Very well, then. Who's the worst for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed. If he wanted to keep them after he was dead, the wicked old screw, why wasn't he more natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have someone there to look after him when he was struck with death. Instead of lying there, gasping out his last, they're all alone by himself.
13: It's the truest word that was ever spoken, Mrs. Oliver. It's a judgment on him.
17: I wish it was a little heavier one, and it should have been you could count on it, if I could have laid my hands on anything else. Now open that bundle, Joe, and let me know it's by you to you. Speak out, plain.
13: Let's see. A seal, pencil case, pair of sleep buttons. Hmm. I'll give you one pound eight. And not another sixpence if I was to be boiled for not doing it. Of course I always give too much to the ladies. It's a weakness of mine. It's a way I ruin myself. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. Sheets and towels, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. What do you call this? Bed curtains? Aye, bed curtains! You don't mean to tell me you took them down rings or more with them in there.
17: And what if I did? Why not? What a
13: lovely shirt. I hope it didn't die better than catch You may look through that
17: shirt to your eyes, take and you won't find a hole in it. Nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had. And a fine one, too. They'd a waste if hadn't been for me.
13: What do you call wasting it?
17: Putting them on to be buried in, but I took it off again. (laughs) Don't you see? He frightened everyone off when he was alive, only to profit us when he's dead.
16: (laughs) I see. I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Spirit, this is a dreadful, filthy place. In leaving it, I shall not forget its lesson, believe me, let us go, let me see some tenderness connected with the dead, I beg of you.
13: We were beginning to worry. Did you go? To see them dig it? Yes, I went by there today, so I'm late. I wish
16: you all could have been there. It would have done you good to see how green it is. But well, you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there every Sunday to visit him, you see.
17: I guess whom I saw today? Fred Hollowell, Mr. Scrooge's nephew. I met him on the street. He saw that
13: I was a little down, and, well, he is the most pleasant speaking man you've ever heard, and so I was not afraid to tell him, and that is what he said to me. I'm heartily sorry, Mr. Cratchit, heartily sorry. And he pledged to be of any service he could be to us. He even gave me his card, see? And said I should call on him at home.
17: But it's not for the sake of anything he might be able to do for me, so much as for his kind way that I am thankful. It really seems as if he... Had known our tiny Tim and fell with us, and I've got some good news for you, Peter. Mr. Hollowell told me he had been able to secure us an apprenticeship
13: for you. You'll be getting eight shillings a week starting Tuesday next. But however
17: and whenever we parted from one another, I'm sure none of us will ever
13: forget poor tiny Tim, shall we? And I know as well, my dears, that when we
17: remember how patient and mild he was, although he was a little, little child, We shall
16: not quarrel amongst ourselves and forget our little tin in doing it. Spirit, something tells me that the moment of our parting is near at hand. I know it, but I don't know how. Tell me, the man who was spoken of, the one who died. Tell me who it was. Scrooge onward, past the church, and through the iron gates of the churchyard. In the distance, Scrooge could barely discern the freshly dug grave of poor Tiny Tim. But the spirit continued walking
13: towards an overgrown area filled with graves that are broken and cracked, long forgotten. It stopped in front of one particular stone and pointed
16: Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point answer me one question spirit are these the shadows of the things that will be or are they the shadows of things that may be only the course of a man's life—it persevered and will determine certain ends. I accept it. But if he departs from those courses, the ends must change. Say that is so with what you show me. Ebenezer Scrooge! No, no, it can't be. Am I that man? Am I the man who died, whom no one mourned? Say it isn't so, spirit. Say it isn't so. Spirit, hear me. I I, I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been but for your intervention. Why show me this if I have passed all hope? Surely, surely your nature deceives me and pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by a change in life. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will remember the lessons of the past. I will live in the present. I will live towards the future. The spirits of all three will strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me that I may sponge away the writing on this stone. Please. Please. (laughs) Please. what day is this? It's morning, but what day? How, how long have I been with the spirits? I don't know. I, I, I don't know anything, oh, but I, I'm alive. I'm alive. The bed curtains, they're still here. They're not torn down. They're here. I'm here. I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I feel as like a feather. I'm as, I'm, as, I'm as happy as an angel I, I, I'm as merry as a schoolboy Oh, no. I'm as giddy as a drunken man Wait Wait, wait, wait. Oh, What
17: a beautiful day Hello You, you down there boy Yes you oh, oh, What day is it Wait, don't, don't be afraid my boy What day is it What day is it uh, yes, yes, what day is today? Today? Well, it's Christmas Day. Christmas
16: Day? Uh, are you quite sure, my fine fellow? I should say I am. The spirits have done all in one night. Well, of course, they can do anything like Of course they can. <laughs> uh, hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Uh, do you know the poulterers and the next street but one on the corner? I should hope I did. Wonderful boy, a remarkable boy. Uh, uh, Do you know whether they've sold the prized turkey that was hanging in there? What? The one as big as me? What a delightful boy, a pleasure talking with him. Yes, my buck, the one as
17: big as you. It's hanging there now. It is. Well, then you must go and buy it. Yes, you, go and buy it now. Copper! Police!
16: No, 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 no. Look, I really do mean it. Look, see? Here is the money. Ah, there. Go and buy it, and tell them to bring it round, so that I can give them the directions as to where to deliver it. Come back with the man, and I'll give you a shilling. Ah, but come back with him in less than five minutes, and I'll give you half a crown.
13: Ha 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 Oh, I'll send it to Bob Cratchits. He won't
16: know who sent it. I won't tell him. <laughs> it's twice the size of Tiny Tim! Oh, Tiny Tim... Oh, Tiny Tim will live on my soul Tiny Tim will live they did it all on one night The spirits of Christmas past, present and future Shall strive within me Oh heaven in Christmas time be praised for this I say it on my knees dear lord On my knees God bless you Jacob Marley A merry Christmas to everybody And a happy
17: new year to all the world ha <laughs> ha
16: Now would you believe me If I told you that Scrooge went to church that day He did. And walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head as they passed and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could bring him joy. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything at all could give him. So much happiness.
7: Fred, may I come in?
16: I-, I hope it is not too late to accept your invitation to dine with you and your wife. Fred, please, before you say another word, I must apologize to you and to your mother. I loved her very much. She begged me to look after you, and I have failed both you and her. And On this Christmas day, can you forgive a stupid old man? My uncle.
7: I don't know what to say.
16: Well, you could say Bar Hunberg, a retort I heartily repent of and shall never use again. Or you could say, Come in. Come in? Why, of course. Of course you shall come in. The next morning, Scrooge's counting house. Scrooge arrived earlier than usual, knowing Bob Cratchit would be late, as usual. He had a difficult time portraying his former nature, much to his own delight. Yes, sir.
13: What do you mean by coming here this time of day?
16: I'm very sorry, sir. I'm behind my time. Step this way, if you please, Mr. Cratchit. It's only once a year, sir. It shall never be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday with my family. Now,
13: I'll tell you what, my friend. I am not going to stand for this any longer. And therefore, therefore, I am going to double
7: your salary. What?
13: (laughs) Yes, Bob (laughs) Coach. I am going to double your salary, sir. A merry Christmas to you. One than I've ever given you in many a year. And from now on, I will endeavor to assist your family in any way I can. As for Tiny Tim, he will walk again.
16: I will see to that. Now, you needn't say a thing. Come with me. We will discuss the particulars over a good pint of hot punch before you so much as dot another eye, Bob Cratchit! <laughs> Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew. And ever afterward it was always said of Ebenezer Scrooge that he knew how to keep Christmas and keep it well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed,
13: God bless us, everyone.
1: Mr. Hendrickson steps forward to take his bow, the hall erupts in applause, a testament to the evening's spectacular performance. But then, in a moment of unexpected wonder, the towering ghostly figure reappears. The audience, already buzzing with excitement, falls into a hushed silence, their eyes fixed on the stage. With a dramatic flourish, the figure begins to decloak. The dark, flowing robes fall away, and there, to the astonishment and delight of everyone sits little Zaria, perched confidently on Takoda's shoulders. Mr. Hendrickson, caught off guard by this surprise, stands in momentary disbelief. His eyes widen with surprise, a genuine smile breaking across his face. He steps forward, his applause joining that of the audience, his eyes sparkling with delight. He looks at Zaria with a mixture of admiration and affection, clearly touched by her involvement and the effort to surprise him. The warmth in his reaction is palpable, a father's love and pride shining through him.
2: in hall, dim, and the last echoes of laughter fade into the night, I am reminded of the enchantment that lives within these walls and in the hearts of those who share these moments with us. Remember, in the world of Zarya's Hollow, magic lingers in the air, and stories wait at every corner, eager to be told. So, as we ways tonight carry a piece of this magic with you let the wonder of tonight inspire dreams and the unexpected joys of life and when you find yourself longing for a touch of enchantment remember the doors of zarya's hollow are always open awaiting your return till next time farewell and good night may your dreams be filled with the delightful mysteries of witchcrest peak